0: I had to look outside of design in my career and be like, no, there has to be something more than this because this obviously isn't fulfilling or making me feel purposeful. In the end, I was like, I had a meeting with Monica, my manager, she's like, what do you want next? And I was like, I want to work less. Like, I was like, I want to be here less. Like, can we do that? Like, it was just a weird conversation to have with your boss, but that was, that was really it. It was like, I want, the things I want to invest my time in aren't my career.
1: Hello, and welcome to the UX and growth podcast. This is Austin, your host. And I am so thrilled today to be joined by a designer that I've been wanting to bring on the podcast for quite some time, somebody that I really look up to that I am so lucky to work with. And that's Joel Buchelman. He's a senior interaction designer here at Google. Right now, he's working on Chrome. In the past, he worked on Android actually a two-time Googler. Yeah. You had a period in between there where you actually helped this start this amazing project that was huge in the design community called Design Inc. And you served as the head of design there. Uh, you also worked on mobile apps and the launch of originals at Netflix. So some cool experience there. And for all of you all that are listening that want to see more of what Joel is working on, he does a really cool job of documenting his work on YouTube at Joel Buchelman. And so we he will pop the link to his youtube account into the description but joel It's so great to have you here. We're both in San Francisco. Joel is based in LA, so we only get a couple times a year to do this. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show.
0: My pleasure. I mean, we'd see each other twice a week, three times a week, and um, it's surprising it took this long, but
1: I'm glad we did it. We're busy, busy folks. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So we've got some pretty cool stuff to talk about. I think we're calling this episode Designer at Scale. Uh, This was prompted by a lot of, I would say, maybe introspection that you've been doing around the design industry and design roles?
0: Yeah, we can start at the beginning.
1: Sure, <laughs> let's let's start there.
0: No, no, I mean, a lot of this topic of designer scale started in me um, hitting a point in my career where I was really questioning what I wanted next and what I valued and how I saw myself, um, not only as a designer or like a person in this field, but also how that relates to me as an individual. And so a lot of that introspection, the output of that was this sort of talk that I gave in Toronto and then shared internally um, with our team, but found that there were some, some overall themes um, and practices that I think are helpful for us outside of like our initial craft of like making pictures and drawing software, like there's other things that we need to take care of. And so it helped me like kind of frame that. Which was like a forcing function of my life falling apart, <laughs> and also like my like you know things get crazy and busy, and and
1: you're kind of forced on these um, paths. So I think that this it's an important area for us to talk about because especially now it feels like there's a lot of uncertainty and gray area with relation to design roles, design titles, etc. Yes,
0: uh- <laughs> I'm gonna and I'm gonna ask you a question. I was thinking about this morning. So we're called interaction designers at Google, mm-hmm. right? And then I think our, our industry broadly uses the term product designers, mm-hmm. and historically the like user experience designers. Yeah. I want to propose.
1: Oh. <laughs>
0: this is this is a, a question in my head where I feel like there's often times where you can do the right thing for the user that might be not be right for the product or the business, mm-hmm. right? Depending on whether that's, you imagine that in a, in a lot of different ways in different contexts. Yeah. Is that the difference between what a user experience designer is and a product designer, where a product designer advocates for the user only in the context of where it benefits the business, and a real user experience designer does what's right for the user regardless of the business of the product? Because there's, like, bias there, right? hmm Sorry. That was a hypothetical propose- comment I had.
1: <laughs> Would you propose, like, another title?
0: No, I think titles are, are trash. I don't think <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think that titles matter matter at all. I just think that like there's a there's a nuance there where like you could be motivated to make decisions that better the business, or you can make like this altruistic point of view that's like we're going to make decisions that just make this better for the user. Yeah. I think we think about that in the context of Chrome because we care about this product and Google, but also the open web and all these other yeah. things that are neutral and non-biased. And so like I think we have to struggle with those motivations and points of view, but I find it often that like, good user experience is actually bad, but only because it benefits the product. And so we're mm-hmm. biased in the decisions we make because it benefits our product, which isn't necessarily inherently bad. Yeah, But it might not be the best thing for the user, depending on the context.
1: I think it's it's a good observation. It may be why some folks just choose to call themselves experienced designers, I think, in this sort of effort to not put themselves into a box. At the same time, I think that the default for most designers is to be user-oriented. Sure. And I appreciate the emphasis on the business as well and the product as well. I think that that's something that design needs a little bit more of is like accountability to the the metrics that keep the product alive, because you could certainly be like altruistic through the death of the product, like we're gonna always do the right thing for the user, and then as a result, we're not gonna be able to fund this product, and then in a way, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'd be totally anarchistic. Yeah. But then that's gonna kill the product, and if you think about it, that's actually the worst thing for the user, mm-hmm. you know. So I appreciate this sort of focus on both of those. I think that you're you're bringing up a, a pretty interesting thought. I think that this is something that a lot of designers are struggling with, not just w- with regards to like, am I, you know, communicating that I prioritize the user and the business and not necessarily one over the other. It's very contextual. Right. But am I also communicating that like I don't just make wireframes, you know, I do visual designs yes. too. I prototype, I do yeah. motion, et cetera.
0: I mean it's it's almost like the broader conversation of like art versus design and one is just exist just to exist, which you could be is like, it's just experience as user. It's experience. intrinsic, intrinsic yeah, And like yeah. commercial art or design mm-hmm. is like this more commercially motivated discipline. But I think to your point, I think the consequence of what you create should be considered regardless of whether it's tied to a business strategy or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly related to this conversation in the sense that, I've known myself as an interaction designer and that's what I touted. And that's where I ha- carried a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you start to understand that, like that only goes so far, now you have to consider leadership or influence or other things that matter outside of your work, right? Like that, a lot of the motivations behind this was me realizing that like I did it, like I wanted to become a designer in tech and I I'm doing it now and the future career things for me are are fine and I can consider those, but really, having that not be fulfilling and be like, well, shit, I I work at the, one of the best companies and I work on a product I love with people that I enjoy and I'm still not happy. Oh man, Right. That's like, And yeah. so that's like a very, it felt like a midlife crisis in a way. I was like, well, I'm here now. So what's next? And, yeah. and not having an answer for what's next was the first time I think I've ever, I've always had something I was chasing after. And I was like, yep. well, I've got three beautiful kids and a wife that loves me and a house that I own. And I don't know what's, I didn't have the next thing to like strive for which was like a really weird emotional place to be
1: in yeah man it's it's really good for me to hear you say that because especially when i started i i at google i kind of struggled with a little bit of the same thing like ever since i saw that search engine in 1997 i wanted to work at this company mm. and then i wanted to work on chrome because it's where everything started for me i didn't expect to get here at i guess i was 24 when i was hired i didn't expect to get here that quickly when i did it was amazing, but also a bit like anticlimactic or something sure, like that. Sure, it's because, not what you expect it is. Yeah, you're like, oh, you're like, oh, wait a second. Like, I've been really, really, really working hard to get to this position, and now I've achieved this goal. So it's sort of this weird moment where you're like, what happens when you achieve your goals faster than you expected to? Where does that put you? And for me, I think much like yourself, it sort of throws you into this zone of like an existential crisis Mm -hmm. where you're like, okay, first off, like I achieved my goal. I'm very happy about that. But of course, it's not everything that you expected it to be. And in other ways, it's more than what you expected it to be, of course. But then you're like, well, what's my next goal? Because the fact that I had the goal, that's what facilitated the growth.
0: Yes. It's that curiosity that keeps you pushing forward.
1: Right, and that's been the harder
0: part. Is it like, We even talked about it yesterday with imposter syndrome, and there's this essence of this notion that like the more that you know and understand, the more you realize that you don't understand or know. And those Mm -hmm. things that seemed impossible are very normal to you. And so it's very easy to feel like, why am I capable to do this? But it's because you know so much. Yeah. But that's just known now. That's like normal. That's ground zero. And so I understand the imposter syndrome part. It's the other part that concerns me where it's like, I I don't have a next role. I don't – if I don't (laughs) want to be a manager – there's not like a IC, like there's not the, ne- I mean, there's staff design. It's all the same thing with more responsibility. And so for me, I had to look outside of design in my career and be like, no, there has to be something more than this because this obviously isn't fulfilling or making me feel purposeful. In the end, I was like, I had a meeting with Monica, my manager. She's like, what do you want? next and i was like i want to work less like i was like <laughs> i want to be here less like can we do that like which is a weird conversation to have with your boss but that was that was really it. it was like i want the things i want to invest my time in aren't my career and so that was a really interesting conversation to understand of like what that actually means and how I spend my time differently, or even my mental space. Even I'm not at work, I felt myself like kind of at work in a way.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: And it's I think that's it's really hard to, especially now with our context of technology to detach yourself from that or create yeah. those like physical barriers.
1: Yeah, um, I I think that that point of like digital well being, work life balance, it's a challenging thing, especially in tech and where everything is so connected. You never fully feel disconnected from your work and i think that the more responsibility that you take on the the higher performing you are the higher performing company you're at the better team you're on the like further that you move into leadership whether that be in, in an individual role or in a managerial role the harder it is to disconnect from that stuff and yeah you risk losing some of the magic that like brought you into the fold in the first place so what does that mean for you? I mean, part of it was convincing myself that I still wanted to
0: do what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, th- me saying like what I value and my actual craft, like, so part of it was convincing myself, like, yes, I do still want to be in big tech. I do want to work for Google for lots of reasons. There's a lot of things I value that are still within this. Mm-hmm. The harder part was me. I think there the 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 craft part of it was ego and realizing that like, as much as I can self-deprecate and have imposter syndrome and feel like I always have area to grow, like I still carried a lot of value to being Joel Google designer <laughs> yeah. that carried a lot of meaning to me. And even leaving Google, it felt people engage with you differently. People perceive you differently. And yeah. so like I've been through that rollercoaster, but really being able to say like, I actually am okay if I never design at Google again, like that's, I feel fulfilled and like I'm, I have value outside of, this role in this company. And I don't think people really struggle with that enough. Mm-hmm. I think it's why people fall apart when their company falls apart or if their feature gets criticized on Twitter and they it's
1: have a mental breakdown.
0: Yeah. When you have that much meaning tied to a title or identity or perception that can be dangerous. And I found it being somewhat unhealthy for me. It's just being a healthy human being. Yeah. And so part of this was like identifying what I care about in my craft and what am I good at? Like I have skills, mm-hmm. but then also not, letting that define or dictate who I am or how I think about myself or what I value.
1: Yeah. I think you're right on the money with like letting go of ego Mm -hmm. and being too emotionally tied to your work or perhaps more specifically having emotional reactions to criticism Mm -hmm. of your work or having an emotional reaction to losing Or changing a status that can be very dangerous. It can hinder the quality of your work. It can uh, destroy your relationship with your coworkers, and it can dramatically limit your potential. Because when when you left, when you took that leap of faith and you left Google and you went to be the head of design at Design Inc. and start this amazing startup that. Became a a huge force and very well respected entity in the design community. But at the time, you had no idea whether it was going to become that thing. That took a lot of courage. And I think that's part of what. Would have to be part of the equation that affords you that courage is being able to relinquish your ego and say, "I I don't have to be tied with the amazing brand and all of the value yeah. that that brings me."
0: Yeah, there's part. There's definitely part of that. There's a humility and be like, "I'm going to do something for ourselves and we're going to make something." But there's also in that same breath the same amount of ego. I'm like, <laughs> "We're doing this." Like you could have the same ego issue and be like, "I'm quitting Google because." I'm just one part of all these people. I want to do something that has my fingerprint sure. on it and I want to make all the decisions. And so I think that the the, the context and identity of ego uh, applies in both scenarios. but for sure there was there was some sort of risk at least, if not humility of saying no I'm gonna we're gonna leave all of this everyone was at Google or at a big startup or at a big thing that was well-funded. Everybody that, yeah. Everyone was like, all right, we're going to try this and do our thing. Yeah. Uh, Which uh, probably a little bit of ego and insanity and humility all wrapped (laughs) into one, (laughs) you know, like it's not a smart thing to do, but it's worth trying, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that this is, for folks that are coming up in their career, it can be therapeutic, as you say, to encounter these moments and to like reconcile yourself with them and say, hey, you know, I have all of these amazing goals. Um, I'm going to achieve them. Where is that going to put me? And I don't like any career, you know, you think about like when you start a new job, it's usually a bit of a roller coaster like you start and you're on an amazing high and then you realize like all of the Uh, inefficiencies and (laughs) yeah yeah and the the blockers that you're going to be facing to shipping amazing things and you see the amazing things that they did ship were gargantuan efforts Mm -hmm. and you're not going to go in there and you know say oh like i have this idea this is what's going to fix everything and that's what we need to ship because you're not fully aware of all of the context of the constraints and requirements and resources, et cetera, that place the company into the position that it was in. And so you drop to this low and you may even get to this point where you question whether you made the right decision and, or you, you question, um, whether you should stay on that team or at that company or startup or, or, you know, whatever it is. And then over time you, you adapt and you grow and, your your highs come back you know yeah
0: if I've learned anything and like working a different context mm. and I haven't been doing this even a long time but the time I have been doing this realizing that like change is always happening especially at a company like Google like products are starting and being sunsetted and teams are reorging and that's just normal and the more that I've found, my ability to detach myself from those sameness structures and or to an identity has given me some more evergreen point of view and or sanity in the sense that mm-hmm. like this team has changed a lot this last year and it's grown. And I have a new role and it will change next year too. And so as soon as I start to like have any sort of comfort or security in a structure or a company or even an identity like as soon as that falls apart, then I will fall apart. Mm-hmm. And so part of it's like detaching myself from a lot of those things and realizing that like change is just always happening. Mm-hmm. And so like, what are, what are the the true things that are evergreen that I really care about that I can continue to tie myself to and keep me anchored. Right. And some of that is like my identity and value of being a healthy functioning person for my family. Right. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm a finally like an adult. Like it took me, <laughs> I'm 34 and it like took, you know, 14 years or whatever it is to actually figure out how to, be some sort of an adult. And I'm still like, now it's like the next phase of whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like I hit my midlife crisis a little early, <laughs> you know, like got to start on that.
1: Yeah. I can relate to that. And maybe there's, you know, multiple midlife crises that you go through. But I think that another thing that I have observed that can be very useful is in the same way that you wouldn't tie your emotions to your designs or to like your role at a company or something, or your identity, et cetera, too, too tightly to those things, which as you say, are always changing and are always in flux. I think it's important to also independently develop your identity, your brand, et cetera. Something that I found sure. to be very useful for me, which I think you've also done an excellent job of, is having a strong personal brand. I would observe that the way folks that I interact with, especially in the design community, perceive me is first as Austin and second as somebody that worked at Google. But if that were to flip and it were to be that I was first perceived as, oh yeah, that guy at Google, I think that would be quite unsettling for me.
0: Yeah, I think that's been the. I do think I have a present. If I quit Google tomorrow, like people will know who I am, and I'll have some sort of relevance in the design community. But I think that's the whole—the fact that I just said that, like, is. I think the problem, like I, we have to brand ourselves. So like people think of us a certain way. And I think that's the actual toxic part is that like, Mm. we have to call ourselves a title and say, we work at a company because we care that people value us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more the root of like, no, we're you're valuable regardless for reasons that you shouldn't care about. And people should care about you. Not because you work at a big company. Right. And there were people that cared when I quit and we started designing and they did help us. And there were others that didn't because we weren't, emailing from an at google address anymore (laughs) it's just true right people just don't aren't as interested and they don't have the equal benefit of engaging with you because you don't have that value is disproportionate and Mm -hmm. i'm not saying we should ignore like influence and the things and resources and things that do make us valuable and capable but i think it's very easy especially when like everything has to have like your moniker your title and what you want to say about yourself like that you were forced to tell people what we want them to think of us about right like yeah this is who i am think of me this way um and if you're almost disingenuous you're criticized like oh you're being an asshole because you said like some funny thing in your twitter bio Mm -hmm. um but it's a lot of the reasons i didn't post videos most of this year and didn't share a lot because i didn't have anything positive to say and or didn't care what anyone thought like i didn't Mm -hmm. care if anyone knew that i was on youtube and so i have a, a different point of view of, of why I share things and why I still have an identity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's very practical about having a business and having, if I want to write a book someday, I want to ha- be able to do that. But I, I very much am posting things and sharing things that I really don't have any expectation as far as outcome or mm-hmm. or perception. I really don't care if people like the things that I'm making. I'm doing it more uh, for personal reasons. And I think that's been a, a weird motivation shift.
1: Yeah. So would you say that you're channeling passion and that those passions might not always align with what people expect of you or want from you?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was always creating out of passion. Mm-hmm. I would just talk about specific things or wouldn't say certain things because I want a certain perception. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Like even if it's I'm not going to be negative because I want to put out happy videos. Mm-hmm. I care less if you're happy or sad from watching my video. Like yeah, if yeah, I'm yeah. sad, I'm going to write it. I'm going to make a sad video. Or if I want to criticize Google, I'll criticize Google. And so it's it's more that like detaching yourself from – caring what people think.
1: I think that that perspective empowers you to be a much better designer. It's perhaps one that is only afforded to you with experience and comfort in your career. You know, when you're early in your design career, I think it's harder to say, I'm going to actually say what I think and do, you know, what I want and fully channel my passion, because there's higher risk, you know, you're not as established, and I understand that. But I think that one of the ironies and the paradoxes of design is that it both inherently needs diverse and creative people, yet it is also inherently homogenous or homogenizing, especially ideologically, expressing your opinions and your thoughts if they are different than what the design community, the design establishment or whatever, even outside of design and into your personal life, whatever, it's unacceptable. And I think that this is a total hypocrisy on the part of us, on the part of our industry to enforce, like, oh, this is who a designer is. This is what they look like. This is who they vote for. This is how they behave. Yes, exactly. Uh, Without recognizing that, like, wait a second, actually, a designer, there is no designer identity because in order to be a good designer to create good designs, you have to design for an audience. And an audience in this context, especially in the context of our product, 3 billion users, it is quite literally the world. So what you see on our team is, like, a very, very, very broad cross-section mm-hmm. of people in, in terms of their personal lives, their identities, yes. their backgrounds, etc. Mm-hmm. And we're constantly conflicting with each other.
0: Yeah. No, I think it, I think to your point, if we really talk honestly about what we do, there is no prototypical designer.
1: So something that you mentioned that I think is an important takeaway for this episode is the criticality Of self-awareness.
0: I think the hard part about self-awareness is that, like... It's like saying you're trying to learn empathy as well. You could say, I should care about this thing, or I should become more aware of myself. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's very easy for us as animals to, like, want a very defined and precise thing, a way to see the world. So it's like, I see myself as this, and I see this other thing I'm supposed to be empathetic towards as this. Mm -hmm. The only way I I think you find true empathy... Or true self-awareness is um, for those things to fall apart or, or be broken in a certain way. So you can say I need to be empathetic towards – we'll take Chrome for an example. I need to be empathetic towards people in emerging markets with low data speeds, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is something to say, like, we care about. But until you actually use a phone when you need it with low data in a place that you're unfamiliar with – that you acquire you that experience to fully be empathetic to understand where that person's coming from. So like that model of how you perceive their problem has to fall apart and you have to experience it in a different way from a different point of view to actually earn that empathy, mm-hmm. um, which is why like immersion and all these types of research are so useful because you get to actually see it firsthand and yeah. get to care about it and know it in a different way. And I think that relates in the same way to identity in the sense that a lot of people like the way that they're perceived and how they understand themselves. And it's very hard to force yourself to break that apart. I had a lot of external reasons why a lot of my personal identity fell apart and it wasn't related to work. But in that identity falling apart, me trying to understand who I was made me question work altogether. Like, why not quit and like sell all this shit and get out of here? <laughs> right. Like, I did. I almost moved to Tennessee. Like, I was ready to get out. Like, really? Yeah. I was ready to like cash out and like freelance two days a week and like buy a house on an acreage. Like, it because has I, been could, done. no, I know it's possible. I did the numbers. Yeah. Um, I'm still not out of the yeah, realm of I possibility. Like I'm, I, I mean, there's I still got a lot of time to work. So it's something I, I it's still always something I, I question, but I was only able to even consider the option of never working in tech again um, because I was questioning everything. And that's not fun, right? It's not a pleasurable experience to go through. But I think sometimes, unless you're super intentional, open to a lot of feedback and going through therapy and doing a lot of this like mind work I think it's very hard to get that social awareness like you get social awareness about your work and who you are as a designer and what your style is mm-hmm. through years and years of critique and like making bad decisions mm-hmm. right so it's one of those it's hard to force or like see the start or end of but I feel yeah. like often It doesn't happen because we like sameness, and so it takes some of that sameness to fall apart, or a big move, some sort of large change um, in context to to kind of shine some different light on on
1: self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. This I think sort of plays into this idea, especially around like risk aversion, change aversion, et cetera. It plays into the idea that designers typically aren't founders, and this is a I guess you could say, a weird phenomena that I've been pondering a lot lately, especially in working. I've been advising um, various startups in the Bay Area and none of the founders are designers. And if you talk to the partners, they will tell you it is just increasingly difficult even to find designers that are founders. I don't know exactly why that is, but I think that you could be onto to some of like the reasons for that. I don't want to you know, attribute too much value to design, as I think many designers attempt to do. I don't think it's all that special. I think it's something that anybody can do. I don't think design can change the world, et cetera. But it is a craft. And because of that, like you're honing this craft and you invest a lot into that craft. And then when it's like, oh, how about you do that? But twenty percent of the time, and the rest of the time, you're going to be like hiring people and dealing with accountants sure. and trying to find product market fit and all of this stuff. That doesn't suit itself quite as well to somebody that's a designer as it would to somebody that, for example, is a product manager, which or someone is like
0: done sales and also yes. done some real estate and then also. I think it's part of how we're taught though too. Like, as you're talking about craft and what is designer, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're taught to think pretty binary mm-hmm. it's like white space is good and tension is bad right mm-hmm. and I, I feel like you almost see this in a lot of new visual work whether that's in like album art or video like in actual art and culture you see a lot more absurdist and bad design intentionally. I think it's because there's this move away from the simple, clean Apple point of view. Mm -hmm. But it didn't come from design. That came from art and people not following the rules. And I find that when you take a designer and say, okay, you understand design and products, but now you're going to actually run a business too. It's hard for designers to be like, okay, this is good enough. I'm going to do these other things and live in that margin. Usually it's like, it's good or bad, Mm -hmm. right? We need to do the whole system or none of it. Mm -hmm. I find this really hard for designers to do because like, no, I want... We can't have this without that. It has to be the whole thing because it's the system and the vision and it's it's romantic, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that if you see your role as that, you're going to die in a startup because you are going to have to do headcount. Yes. I was reviewing 100 portfolios a week. Mm-hmm. I was cold calling agencies asking if they needed to find us out. Like I was doing, and that wasn't fun either. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to do it. But I agree with you. I think it, that there's a way of thinking that doesn't it doesn't serve the entrepreneur well. Yeah. In the sense that there's it's a little... Sp- pretentious and staunch.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is an interesting tension there between, you know, having something that is creative versus having something that is practical. And that is not to say that creativity should overcome uh, or supersede accessibility or usability or cultural sensitivity or whatever attribute that is so critical to user experience and in my opinion is really what brings like the value of the user experience designer their ability to translate that problem into a viable solution something that is real but then perhaps at the expense of creating something that is different or interesting or breaks the rules. Sure,
0: it's almost more important because you don't have time for everything. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, are we going to care about accessibility, internationalization, or that next feature? What's going to hurt? <laughs> yeah. What's going to hurt the most? Because you can't, you don't have enough resources to do all three. Mm-hmm. So you could say, well, this first version is only going to go out to this many people. So like, we're going to bump accessibility because we understand that we have a smaller user group. Yeah, or the vice versa. Like, regardless of the context, right? But those are the you have to make those design empathy, critical decisions when you have less resources. It's like, you should budget more when you have less money, not when you have more money. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like designers should be the people starting companies, but Mm -hmm. I feel like it's hard to be happy there if you don't have that right framing.
1: So you have an entire framework that you've put together that's kind of helped you to come to this more zen, introspective place in your life. And you shared it with our team the last time that we, we all got together. And it was quite remarkable how everybody responded to that. And I felt like it was one of the better tools that I've been given throughout my career that I think, you know could not only bring some context to to how you arrived at these conclusions that you've shared throughout this episode, but could also help others to arrive at those conclusions or to better understand themselves and their career trajectory and where things are going from here. So we will share some of those resources in the description. Joel's also going to be talking about it in his vlog that he'll be posting about this episode, which I will link in the description when it's released as well. But if folks want to get in touch with you directly to talk to you more about this type of stuff, what you're working on, how you've sort of brought yourself to the point that you are at in your career today, what are the best ways for them to get in touch with you?
0: I mean, I'm all over the internet. (laughs) It's pretty easy to find. I probably spend most of my time on Twitter and Instagram. I'll give a little context of what those things are, but there's really just a, a visual framework. And for me, as a designer, I felt like it was only real if I made some sort of deliverable <laughs> to share out of it but it was i mean it's a pretty flexible system and I'll, I'll probably talk about it a little bit on my video but essentially it's a diagram that's used a lot in like like evaluating you know skills and and personality type things and i picked a couple of of topics and found different lenses of that topic and decided to grade myself as a way of like really being honest with myself. And so I think there's quite a bit of flexibility, to, even for those the listeners that aren't designers or whatnot, but yeah. I think it's good to to evaluate the whole self, not just like people say like, I want more time with my kids, but it's like, yes, but how are you going to do that? You can't do that unless you evaluate why you work where you work and what you're working on. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's those, all, those things are all intertangled. So yep. hopefully this provides some clarity
1: absolutely well we'll drop your twitter and your instagram in the description joel thanks so much finally yes, we dude. got to record this was one of the first more... of many yes next one
0: we can talk about design changing the world and why
1: <laughs> i agree <Yeah. laughs> let's take it on all right awesome all right this was great thanks yeah, yeah. <laughs>